Hello and welcome to The Bunker, a podcast for students of American history. Today's date is April 24th, 2020, and for episode number 18, we head to Appleton, Wisconsin to talk to fellow advanced placement United States history teacher, Brian Kurth of Appleton East High School. Brian, you on? Uh, hello. I think we're live, my friend. Hmm. You hear me on your end? Oh, yeah, I did. Sorry, I had the volume down on my mic. How insane is this that I can actually send this out to you and we're live? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, is, it, sound, it's, it sounds pretty clear on my end. Yeah, mine as well. And this is the first time I'm doing it without headphones. So um, I tested it last night briefly for a five-minute conversation, but it sounded pretty cool. And I'm hoping that if I need to do any post-production editing, that's easy as well. I appreciate you doing this, my friend, um, trying to find new and interesting ways to connect with the content. Um, so I'm glad that you agreed to do it. Yeah, no problem. This is exciting. Um, um, uh, I, I listen to podcasts all the time, but I've never been on one. So that makes two of us. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to be, uh, breathing down Joe uh, Rogan's neck anytime soon, but still it's fun. <laughs> trying to find a space. And I know you, based on what I've seen you produce, you do a really nice job of getting resources for your kids out there. And I, I've been a big fan of that. So congratulations on that work. I know that's not easy. That that's time consuming. You're doing a great job. Uh, yeah, thanks. No problem. I wanted to get a little background uh, on you because I want my kids are going to be listening to this right now. I think my audience is creeping around 30 or 35 right now. Um, half of that if I take out relatives. But I wanted <laughs> to have them get a sense of what you guys are going through. And you're in Appleton, Wisconsin? Yes. Is that What kind of school district are you in right, size-wise? Um, well, for our state, it's a pretty large one. It's the sixth largest in the state. Um, oh, wow. my high school is one of three and we have about 1500 students. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we're similar um, in size. Yeah. We have okay. about 1400. Now you guys are, uh, just South of Green Bay. Uh, yeah. South, Southwest. We're about 30 miles from, um, uh, from Green Bay. Okay. Packer country. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, really, sad you... about the, really sad about the buck season right now. Cause um, <laughs> I'm a pretty big NBA fan and um, we just had it. We we're having the best season ever. And <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be able to complete it now. That's insane. Yeah. It's uh, I don't follow much basketball. My son's a huge Sixers fan, but mm. I, I kind of follow through him. So that's, it's really an amazing story. This whole thing is unreal. And uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I'm, I'm closer to uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I grew up right on, on the border, so I followed their feeds. And my son asked me, he goes, what do you think about, you know, no baseball? I'm saying, you know, when I explain it to people in terms of sport, what I'm missing most for me when baseball started, it was like a six-month relationship that I could always count on. You know, Tuesday night, boom, game's on. I always listen to the games because I like, you know, kind of creating the game in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and missing that's been been a struggle. But, you know. Hopefully yeah, we'll, we'll get through it. We have um, our radio stations because we have Bob Euchre for our radio person who, you oh, know, wow. is, yeah, that's right. yeah, is probably, you know, easily top five for, um, you know, radio baseball or just any kind of sports, you know, voice and everything. So okay. a few of our radio stations will, will just play, uh, you know, recorded games from last year or because we had a pretty good season last year too, um, or the last couple of years or classic games. Cause he's been our radio guy for, oh man. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. Since I was a kid, since late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. It's one of the, I actually was able to, um, I've heard him call a game. 
and I've heard uh, Ernie Hallwell call a game. Uh, mm-hmm. I was in Detroit, so I actually put the radio in and just was at the game live, but listened to the call. It's so cool. It's probably why I'm so drawn to like the audio uh, podcast uh, content version here for delivering uh, for my kids because I've I've been experimenting. I know you do. Um, what program actually do you do to post your videos? Actually, I use one that not a lot of I don't think a lot of the people use. I use We Video because. Oh, wow. um, you know, our school has um, uh, the pro version. And so it has like nearly, I mean, it's not unlimited, but it's nearly unlimited like storage. And it took a little bit to get used to. Um, but now that I'm used to it, like it, it goes pretty quick. Yeah, I think the learning curve here, if anything, with this school closure, what it's done for me is allow me to experiment with tools. We in fact have we video as well. I just actually um, signed up for a workshop on that because I wanted to find a way to work some video in as well. I'm trying to balance. Um, I'm not a very good homeschooler. I have a seventh grader and a ninth grader. So just navigating that day, I found that just doing my audio version was easy because I could hide in the basement and do it and not worry about the chaos around me. But I'm interested in that we video piece. And I'm also interested in kind of sustainability moving forward. There's so many tools out there. I want to be really good at a, at a handful of them and not be bad at seven or eight of them. So I'm trying to find ones where I can land and say, all right, this is going to be one of my tools in my toolbox when school reopens. And that's why I'm doing this right now, to be honest with you. Uh, this has given me a chance to just think deeper about certain topics um, that, you know, as we rushed to the end of the course to get ready for the national exam, you know, some issues that I may have just kind of gleaned over. I'm now thinking more deeply about, um, which has been a real a blessing, to be honest with you, because uh, I can't really complain. You know, I'm not a first responder. You know, I'm not a pharmacist working 18 hours a day. I'm, right. I'm a guy in my basement just answering emails and posting content for a bunch of college, you know, mo- kids motivated to do college level work. So, you know, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed in that regard. So this is just like tinkering time, which is fun, which is, you know, why I reached out to you. I actually reached out to an author, believe it or not. I reached out to an author who wrote a book about the Sacco and Vanzetti case and just a case I was always curious yeah. about. And she got back to me and, and I'm doing an interview with her at three o'clock today oh, cool. just to talk about the book. It's unbelievable. So yeah, that's yeah, great. I'm really, really enjoying that side of it. Um, how about uh, your background? Where'd you go to school? College? Um, well, high school, I actually went to the school that I'm working at, but I haven't, I haven't stayed in the region the whole time. Um, I went to college uh, fairly nearby at UW Oshkosh. Um, okay. And then um, I actually taught overseas for a few years. Um, oh, well. I, I taught in uh, Guatemala for two years at an international school. So I'm teaching in English, but I'm, I'm teaching to usually kids of like diplomats or, um, or just uh, local kids who um, families have the means to send them to a private international school. So I was there in Guatemala for two years, and then I was in um, Thailand uh, for two years. They're both like two-year contracts. And wow. then um, and then I came back uh, to Wisconsin. So after four years of, of being in Central America and in Asia, then I came back to Wisconsin to um, yeah, get a master's degree here and um, and also just you know give public school teaching a go here. So then I kind of bounced around the state a little bit, um, but then I eventually got the opportunity seven or eight years ago to come back to my hometown and, uh, and my home high school. So uh, although there's a lot of people in my high school that that never left, like, like they um, they went to school there and now we have a lot of like former teachers who are former students there too. But I was like one of the wow. only ones that kind of like went around the world and then came back again. 
that is that's very cool. I got a question for you. Did you teach U.S. history in these placements? All sorts of things. Um, in Guatemala, I was teaching middle school. I had seventh grade was um, uh, geography and uh, eighth grade was kind of a rough overview of like world history. I think it was more, if I'm trying to remember right, I think it was more focused on the Western hemisphere. And then in um, Thailand, I had just a ton of sections. It was a really small private school. So I had like uh, ancient civilization for sixth grade, Western civilization for seventh grade, Eastern Civ for eighth grade. And then I taught an Asian studies course for seniors. That was interesting because I was teaching about things like Buddhism, but like most of my kids were Buddhist already. Oh, wow. So I had to really do my homework. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I didn't actually, I didn't get a chance cool. to do U.S. history there, but um my first chance to do U.S. history was when I got back um, at a different school district, uh, Fond du Lac. It's further south from where I currently am. And then um, when I got the chance for um, the current school I'm in, so seven years ago. So I've been teaching AP U.S. history for this is my seventh year then. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, I had it. There was a big there was a pretty steep learning curve there from going to, you know, never having an AP class to um, AP U.S. history. <laughs> yeah, I made the jump. um I was always just curious, too, about teaching in different locations because um, I always wanted to know, you know, maybe how other people uh, received the story, you know, from U.S. history. I did have an opportunity, and I didn't pull the trigger on this, but right out of college, they were doing kind of like what you did, like two-year contracts at an Indian reservation mm -hmm. in the northern part of New York State and Salmon River. And I was always thinking, oh, my God, what would that have been like to teach an audience of Native Americans? Because um, there's pockets in this story that, you know, that, that don't end well for Native Americans. And I always thought, how would that be received? I also have some nephews that live in North Carolina that referred to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. So I was always mm -hmm. just curious about the angle um, that you taped in terms of teaching to the audience that's in front of you. Well, kind of it was interesting because it was all, it was all like, for instance, in Thailand, I had a lot of students who were South Korean. I had some American oh. students. I had some Thai students. Um, and then like um, one Israeli student, a, a German. Um, wow. So you kind of get a lot of different perspectives from all over. And Guatemala, it was mostly, the majority was Guatemalan students, but then again, a mixture from all over Latin America and America and, and other places. Wow. That is, that's cool. Yeah, ours is, uh, my grouping is not that diverse. You know, I think um, that's the one you know area that we kind of lack. I work in a district that's fantastic. We have incredible support top to bottom. We have more tools than we know what to do with. And we have a support network there to kind of help us through it. So it's a great spot to be. And I've been in my current spot for about 20 years. And prior to that, I was uh, I worked at a, um, a small rural farming school uh, with a graduating class of about 70. Um, which had its uh, fiscal challenges and resource issues. Yeah. Uh, we only had one computer lab, uh, and it was in the elementary school, and you had to sign it out a month ahead of time. Uh, I remember that. I remember those days. It was insane. So it didn't really encourage, you know, you know creative applications of technologies if, if, you know, you didn't have access to them. Here it's just the opposite. I have access to anything. I'm a kid in a candy store, to be honest with you. And prior to that, I did a stint at a youth detention facility uh, in upstate New York. So kids that were, this was their last stop before they went to DFY, the Division for Youth. And that was, um, I guess, a crash course in classroom management. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm here now and I'm staying here till I retire. I'm, I'm just turned 50. But at this point, I'm, I'm kind of reinvigorated uh, in looking at the next stage and being able to connect and find new ways to kind of dissect the content. I'm, I'm worried about this test coming up for my kids. Um, I know you're in this position as well. Um, I was 
thinking, and I told my kids, you know, several weeks ago that um, maybe the test would look like here's six six SAQs, you know, pick four or five, and now we know it's going to be a DBQ, which um, not a huge fan of, but you know, here we are doing all this, you know, fourteen ninety one all the way to nineteen forty five to have it encapsulated in one DBQ is frustrating to me a bit because I thought with the SAQ you have different skills you can address, different time periods, and the kids can kind of bring in what they've been exposed to as opposed to having this one DBQ shot. And even to guess what that DBQ is, I don't even, you know, have an inkling what it may be. I know you have uh, made some predictions about that. Or you would like to see Well, um, I just, you know, I saw a recent article in the Washington Post. It was posted on some Facebook pages, too, about, like, um, that the college board should, should cancel the AP test, which I, I don't really agree with because – while I, I definitely recognize the the um, some inequity and in, in, in some access issues and things like that and a variety of other other things, but it's still good to give because millions of pe- millions of students sign up for AP tests. I think it's something like two point seven million or something like that every year. So it's still giving an opportunity for for credit, you know that because like I my my district is mostly lower lower income, uh, working poor, um, lower middle class. We have like 50% for your reduced lunch. And, and um, you know, for a lot of the kids who I teach, this is like an opportunity. Like they'll end up with high school, um, you know, with a lot of times sophomore standing. And like if they're going, you know, someone going to like UW-Madison, which is around $25,000 a year. So like these credits go towards, you know, possibly really reducing the, the cost of college where, you know, and, and I think the trade-off for it's ninety-two dollars for the test or something like that for possibly three to five thousand dollars worth of savings is is pretty good. Oh, yeah. So I don't want to like I'm take also... that opportunity away from anyone either. At the same time, yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. I want them to get credit for. I mean, they've been working hard. They've yeah. been plugging since the get-go, and and since we've closed, um, well, everything I've been posting in this online environment, they've been. Um, we've been working through some bumps in the road, but they've been doing everything I've asked them to do. I have lost a couple um, that probably weren't dialed in from the get-go, but the ones that really have been working, they haven't skipped a beat. Um, what's changed, of course, is the face-to-face, which is, is the biggest issue. But I'd like my son went through this. Uh, he's a freshman at SUNY Binghamton, and he had enough credits approved through his high school experience. And this was an ancillary benefit I didn't think of. He had so many credits that he can actually register early. Um, not as like a first semester freshman, because when I was in college as a first semester freshman, you were at the back of the line and you tended to get the worst classes and the least revered professors. Mm-hmm. And he kind of jumped line a little bit. So not only do you have the savings piece, which is super exciting. I, I really appreciate that on, the, on my end now scratching checks, but also the fact that because you're further up in line, you get a yes. better shot at the better classes, which is a huge, huge benefit that I didn't have when I was in school. Yeah. So I want them to be able to kind of show what they know and get the credit for it and, and not, you know, just kind of tap out. So even though it's not the best situation, you know, just one question, right. uh, and obviously doing it online, but I still like the fact that, Hey, here's your chance. And then I've said all year, man, let's, let's, let's get a chance on that day to show what we know. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I also well, thought it was going to be like an SAQ set. So I was kind of surprised when it was just a uh, one DBQ, but it's probably when, after I've like thought about it now for a couple of weeks, it's probably the most practical solution for the situation. Um, it's, yeah, I'm selfish when I think about my situation. I'm like, I'm selfish. This is what yeah. I want to see, and I know that they got a global audience that you have to uh, address here. So I get it. Now I do think it should be an hour instead of 45 minutes because of the tech aspect of it. Um, you know, I think it, 
for, for like student prep, like there's usually like two areas, you know, that students need to prepare for like an overall regular AP US history exam. Like one area is getting down the content and the other area is, is being able to demonstrate the skills, both analyzing a source and, and writing the LEQs or DBQs or SAQs. But for this one, you're kind of throwing in a third one, which is multitasking, which is going to be how well can you flip between the technology that has the prompt docs and then typing? Cause it's not all going to be on one screen. I'm sure you're going to have to scroll to yeah. the documents and everything. So how well can you like kind of flip through that? And then since it's open note, I mean, I know I'm, I'm in the process of making like a help sheet for, for kids for just like, you know, the rubric reminders and stuff like that. And, um, and so like, um, you know, that's gonna be tricky, like kind of flip around. And then, you know, students have to decide, are they gonna, you know, type it or write it? And I'm torn on that one too. I'm not really sure. I think for some kids, uh, most of my students have excellent typing skills, uh, but some just like to write um, more, yeah. more so than type. But then I'm like worried. I'm like, okay, make sure that picture you take <laughs> of your of your stuff is really super clear. Cause just being at the AP reading for the last, I've done the AP reading the last four years and you know, we always try our best to like read even really badly, really bad handwriting. But I know that some points are are are, are not being added to some ones that are just like illegible. And like yeah. when you're reading an essay too, when your mind is so focused on like the bad hand, trying to just figure out the bad handwriting, the reader is also kind of losing the context of what the person is saying. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, also, probably depends on when you're reading it. If you're at the tail end of your day and you've already banged through 250, yeah. days, I'm sure your your eyes are starting to gloss over. Yeah, have you, and have you done the reading, or I have no. not. Uh, my family situation early. I should have done it in my early years when I had a little more freedom. Right now, I'm kind of locked down mm -hmm. uh, in terms of my flexibility. But I, I've heard it's been a fantastic professional development opportunity. That at some point, um, I, I'm going to kind of reintegrate myself into it because I really, I love being around people that are just talking about ideas. And, I, and for me, just having a finer eye when I'm grading um, in terms of the writing piece for my kids, there's some that their writing is so bad. I would encourage them to actually do the typing. My son, whose handwriting is horrible. Um, the one in college now, I said, it's going to cost you, man. You might get a, you know, good content, but you might get a three or a four on the exam just because of your writing. Mm -hmm. You know, he ended up getting a five to shut me up, but there are some kids I, I would steer towards the typing piece just because of the, their handwriting is, is, is tough to get through. And I know them and I can hear their voice when they're writing because I'm familiar with it at this point, but that's not going to be the case if it's in a pile of 200, 250 or whatever you guys had to deal with when you're kind of banging through those. Well, it's, it's um, we get like packets of eight and then uh, eight or nine, and then you kind of work through that and then you have a table leader and they have the option to like back read yours to kind of make sure, but they only really do that the first day. And then, but basically you have all these other workers around, around you that are just responsible. These are just like kind of workers from the area that are just responsible for like handing you like fresh pencils and, and, um, and, and your next packet. So you don't even get up. Like you just kind of stay in your seat when your packet is done of, of eight essays, you put in like your code and, and you bubble in all like the points that each essay got and everything. And then you just raise your hand with the packet and someone comes by and gives you a new fresh packet. So like, they don't even want you, like they have it, they have it down to like a military organization. Wow. Yeah. Hope there's caffeine involved. Uh, well, well, one of the bad parts is every table leader, if you're trying to like maintain your weight is like every table leader always dumps like a bunch of candy all over the table. 
And it's really hard not to just like, even if you're not hungry, but just to do something else for just a half a second and just like grab oh, like, yeah. uh, I'm, gu I'm guilty of yeah. that when I do table grading here, you know, locally, it's the same thing. We have just junk everywhere, Twizzlers, you name it. I know. So I'm hopped up on caffeine and chomping away at that. Junk. I think the first year I went, I think I gained like five pounds like a week. And then the next like three <laughs> years, I said, all right, I'm going to try as much as possible to just go keto for the whole week and not have any carbs and, and like, you know, I'd still always cheat a few times and like grab a few snacks or something because like the other problem is like, it's, you get the hour break or whatever, but you end up, I don't know, it's like eight to, was it eight to five every day? So it's like nine hours. Your, your whole day is kind of taken up and you're pretty pooped by your down, even though you're, you're sitting in a chair the whole time, like you're pretty tired by the, by the end oh, yeah. of it. But I would always try to go for a few runs and, um, and hit the weight room, like really early in the morning before um because it most of the hotels had one but they're always really small but it was like really hard to maintain like a healthy lifestyle there and then the food's usually not very good and like the and you know it's just convention food so oh, absolutely. yeah try and it's not low i know <laughs> i'm gonna try to do it at some and, and the other thing too is and which is a little like i've told my students hey look you know some of these readers they actually see this as kind of like a mini vacation and they'll go out and i mean they'll go out like almost every night and stay up late and stuff like that. And like, that's another reason to try to make sure your essay is clear as possible. Cause some of these guys might that's not be in the right point. frame of mind the next day. <laughs> that's a great point. Didn't consider that, but it makes total sense. I've, I've been at conventions before where that's the case as well. And some groggy participants in the audience were struggling to stay awake. Yeah. That. That's an excellent point. I want to like, uh, circle back to something you said about like a note sheet. So is it the, the college board is allowing them to have like note sheets out? Everything's open note, uh, open note, open tab, everything. I did not. Yeah. Know. It's, oh, it's wow. a free for all. I was one, was wondering about how they were going to, you know, secure this. So that makes sense. So it's a free for all. Now I have, I was thinking of ways to kind of, like I'm way behind probably where you are. Um, this is kind of my normal pace. It's a mad dash. It's, I've been trying to, to pace myself out. I think this break has given me ways to rethink my presentation next year, but I'm wrapping up the new deal. Um, and we're getting into the interwar years and I'll get to world war one next week or world war two, excuse me. And then we're going to go into review. So you've been doing these videos and just for my kids, um, the 16 that are probably listening, <laughs> how did you handle for your kids that review of the continuity and change over time in relation to the uh, economy, the, the federal government, the economy, um, what's this stuff that you highlighted with them? So that one went, um, I think a, a bit further back than, than just the new deal. Like that one went, I went all the way to like 1890. Um, and then, cause that's kind of like really kind of the starting, like the modern era right there. And, um, right. and all the way through 1939 and first it was just kind of like, you know, the, the context of like, I always see like this, this back and forth of the, of the decades or 10 or 20 years where you basically have like, you know, 10 years of laissez faire, you know, conservative government, um, hands off being supportive uh, of big business, which is like 1890 to 1900 and then the 1920s. You know, then you got those two eras that are like the progressive eras of, of 1900 and 1920 with, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Taft and Wilson. And they kind of all have a, those three all have a common thread of like breaking up monopolies, not really directly, unlike the New Deal, not directly like having any kind of social welfare programs, but just trying to save um, and, and have a more competitive marketplace by um, taking down the monopolies and, and giving some basic kind of rules with like things like the Meat Inspection Act and Food and Drug Administration to protect consumers. So it wasn't so much like about like uh, uh, like what's going to happen in the New Deal with um, actually saying, hey, you know, cut your workers' hours down, but raise their pay a bit. 
um, like in the NIRA for, for the New Deal. And so, um, you know, th then when we get into um, the Great Depression, now I'm actually one of the few people that is a bit of a Hoover apologist. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. yeah. I mean, not, not, I'm, I kind of agree. Well, it depends. I'll let you finish well, your thought before. I there's not many of us <laughs> out there. But the thing was, is like, if you go into like Hoover's, you know, background a bit, like he actually played like some key roles in like World War One. He was a part of the... Um, Oh God! What was he doing in World War One? He was on a real... yeah, Belgian food. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, he wasn't. He a lot of times he gets portrayed as just like just thinking that that everything will 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 change for the best, and, and you just let the market, you just let the free hand of the market sort out and everything. Um, Which has been the trend for years. That's what. Everybody yeah, does. yeah. And you know, and yeah. the other thing that was going on too is like the previous panics. Like there was one in 1906. There was the one in the mid uh, 1890s that was really bad. Uh, panic of 1893 is uh, when it got really bad and the, and the market got went, went really far down and everything, JP Morgan, you know, would organize um, uh, other leaders in business and basically have a, have a meeting with them and talk about how to stabilize the markets. And he did that too. in I think it was 1930 or 1931. And this time it didn't work. So I give Hoover like a little bit of benefit of the doubt. I was like, well, you know, normally there were like really, really steep, but short lived recessions. It would last a couple of years. It would not be good, but things would turn around. And so, and, and even though, you know, he didn't even totally go with his own kind of like conservative philosophy that it was going to turn around. I mean, he did a few things granted all these were in 1932, which is the year that he's up for reelection. So he's, yeah. he's got to put something on the table, but you know, there's a reason why we call the Hoover dam, the Hoover dam. Yeah. So like he had the RFC, the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation um, that, that gave out loans to struggling uh, state and local governments and and also try to shore up some of the banking. It just wasn't enough. It, was, it wasn't even close to being enough. Well, we're on the same page on that. And, and I wanted my kids to kind of think about this because I first introduced this response to these economic downturns in the post-Civil War era when the Freedmen's Bureau was created. And I go, you guys have to understand that this is this is a, um, a program that does not fit. The federal government doesn't. Yeah, that was the first program so, ever, Freedmen's Program. Yeah, this is yeah, it's not their game. So short-lived, underfunded, uh, understaffed, all that stuff. So it dies out. And then Hoover, it's too little too late. But I think for Hoover, it's about timing. The guy was probably one of our smartest presidents ever. And can you imagine if he was elected in, in 1920 instead of 1928? I mean, the guy was very mm -hmm. smart, uh, very tactical. Um, he, he knew you know, commerce, he knew trading, all that stuff. He would have probably rode out the Roaring Twenties, you know, and we wouldn't be you know, tagging him as their sole, he's not responsible for the Great Depression. But that inaction was was nothing you know, odd at the time. That was just a global depression that we had never seen on that right. scale before. I tried to get my kids to make a connection as well. So his handling of the, the bonus army, I put an assignment up and this is what I'm trying to do all year. I'm leaning towards weaving in these little opportunities to review. So I asked them to compare the bonus army with Coxie's mm -hmm. army. You know, when you saw the depression of the 93, 20% unemployment, and what do they do? They're going to ask the federal government for some help. So that's that early seedbed of what becomes flowered into the Great Depression's New Deal programs later on. And I don't know who it was off the top of my head, but there is someone within uh, FDR's inner circle that is on the record as saying pretty much the programs that Hoover was, you know, too little too late doing uh rfc being one of them were kind of the blueprint for what we just experimented with with the new deal 
So um, it's just, I just chuckled when you said that because I just had this conversation with my son because uh, this professor at Binghamton wrote this whole book on the New Deal. I said, you know what, there should be just a, an opportunity to re-examine our, our friend Hoover here. The guy lived for 90 years and he's judged by yeah. you know, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's entirely fair. <laughs> But um, there are a few now, things. Just kind of keep on with Hoover. There are a few things though that do go against him a little bit. Um, that I'll even uh, is one is um, I, I assign uh, some conservative sources that is a bit later, like 1936, and th this is from a 1936 speech that he gives about the New Deal. And I don't know if he's just kind of playing. He probably is just kind of playing politics here. But he has he has this great um, short speech. It's like two pages long that I assigned to my two like um, paperback book pages long that I assigned to my students, and he just basically just tears into the New Deal, and he compares it to to Marxism, which it, it's really not. I think a lot of historians argue that the New Deal is actually saving capitalism, because um, there were calls for far more. You know, if you if you had um, Huey Long, you know, as president in this time period, sure. you know. We probably have a have a socialistic dictator then, you know. Um, but he does cut. But uh, Hoover does say like um, that the New Deal is a philosophy of coercion, and um, uh, that he compares the Agricultural Adjustment Act to uh, Marxism. Um, he says he, you know, which I don't think he would have said this in 1932, but four years later he says uh, says the economy would have recovered without government intervention. And uh, government intervention only made it worse, which is really kind of like the, you know, libertarian economists will say that today. Um, and yeah. then um, uh, continues to attack the New Deal as anti-freedom. So like in that, the reason why I signed that primary source is because he does kind of talk a lot about how the expansion of government. And this is kind of like a main conservative talking point that we see for the rest of time, you know, like, like up till. Yeah, so yeah that you, if you expand government, you know, you're going to lessen freedom. And that's not what American identity is about, you know, and then. Yeah, I like that. I, I struggle. Well, I think the kids struggle. I, I, this is the riff. It's the big government New Deal. Right? That's it's this big government. And I was always I try to impress them on my kids. I don't know how successful I am at this, but the idea that he tried to stay within the bounds, you know, of the capitalist yeah. system, you know, and I, I guess when you look at the AAA, that's a bunch of college professors that come up with that idea and it gets shot down by the Supreme Court and. So that's checks and balances working. Um, we have a situation with the Social Security Act where it's not going to be, you know, um, old age insurance like you'd see in Europe. It's going to be a mm -hmm. contributory system where you as the worker contribute and you are entitled to the benefits as a property right thing. You get those benefits that you contribute to. So as much as it is bigger government and more involvement, and, and I always try to say that government to the average American prior to the New Deal was the soldier of the post office. After it, it's going to be, you know, a Social Security check. It's still within the bounds of capitalism. We don't go that socialist Marxist um, way that a lot of people talk about. But it was a circumstance that was unseen before. And I've heard some people kind of project that if no government involvement took place, then the depression would have ended in 36, you know, as, as a, a marker. It's, so it's, you know, it's, it's you're just playing guesswork though. And, um, yeah. uh, anyway, as we see today, you know, like, they do. even with the recent issue with the, uh, uh, with the coronavirus is like, well, everyone seems to be a, a Keynesian now when there's a crisis, <laughs> you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, that both, both sides have just uh, <laughs> passed four bills that are going to, you know, increase our deficit, just our deficit by four trillion this year. So um, it, it's. 
But that's an interesting point, though. Now we have the federal government. So think about, you know, before the New Deal, would it even been on someone's mind that the federal government's responsible providing aid to some flood ravaged section of the South or someone destroyed? You know, no way would that be that, hey, it's the federal government's responsibility. And now where are we now? (laughs) That it absolutely is. And to what degree will they intervene? You know, it's it's just Mm -hmm. what it is. So, and even even like the next era, you know, under Eisenhower, who who didn't attack the New Deal, but he he basically preached kind of limited government. It still expanded under Eisenhower. Like he added, um, I think he added the housing, urban development um, a section of government, and a few other things too. So it, you know, the New Deal is kind of that that permanent change where it's it's not socialism, but it's definitely a more active government um, in regulating the markets and everything. Yeah, that's the activism, I think. And I, I would say, you know, and you go to any room and ask someone, you know, how many of you guys get social security or pain in the system? Every hand's going up. So there is a there. Obviously, it's not a perfect system, but it did do some things. And you can see that continuation on with LBJ as well. Uh, there's a New Deal guy who, who was impacted in his youth um, by the experience living in rural Texas. So you know, it's a great debate back and forth. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you have the Democrats that want to extend and expand and the Republicans that are trying to not, they can't eliminate, but maybe limit uh, kind of what Eisenhower is doing. We're not going to extend mm-hmm. and expand, but there are some features that we're going to. There's one other um, oh, primary source I give to my students. That's, that's about the same length too. That is a, a lady, although I've tried to read, I don't think this is related to Warren G. Harding, although she's writing to Eleanor Roosevelt. And the reason why I really love this source um, as like a conservative response to the new deal is because her talking points well, well okay so the previous one hoover he's kind of like the more the talking points of more of just like um kind of the intellectual wing the intellectual conservative wing but minnie harden is really kind of like the populist kind of you know conservative wing that we see mm-hmm. today and, and throughout time so she basically talks about in this couple of page letter that she sends to eleanor roosevelt she constantly talks about how easy it is for the lazy to now live off government, which is kind of funny thinking because with, with the new, while the New Deal did expand, you know, some social welfare and things like that, it didn't go that far. You know, it wasn't it wasn't LBJ's right. you know Great Society program or anything. Yeah, so she basically calls uh, she calls anyone living off the government uh, quote pampered poverty rats, and and. Um, <laughs> It, it, it reminds me, though, it reminds me of Reagan's 1980s uh, uh, quip about the welfare queens. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's a great and connection to make. It's, uh, and she's basically saying, look, that, they, that these guys, uh, that some people find it easier now just to live off the, the welfare of the government, and that's off the backs of hardworking, taxpaying Americans. All right. <laughs> well, I don't know. I look at the CCC, man. I look at those young men, you know, digging ditches, building lintos, making trails. Uh, I don't know if they were living off yeah. the government as much as, you know, it's obviously a different approach. It's it's pump priming versus trickle down, but still it's a, an attempt to you know, stimulate the economy in some way. Those guys were getting after it, planting trees and, you know, going out into the woods and actually preparing them for life in the military for the most part. Yeah, we have CCC time. trails around like oh. our state parks. Like there'll be like a trail actually called like CCC. Uh, one of our great state parks is uh, Devil's Lake and it's just a beautiful location. Uh, it kind of looks like somewhere out in the Appalachians, even though it's in the upper Midwest. And um, the, the these trails are made out of like this really hard, like uh, a quartzite. They made steps out of this quartzite rock. 
And I just couldn't imagine them like hauling like these boulders around and chipping away at this rock to like make these kind of like steps in the in these trails that go on for miles all around the place. I'm like, oh, you know, it's incredible. That's cool. I look at the byproduct, not just the trails, which I love, the outdoors guy myself, but I look at even, um, I have a huge um, 10 by 10 poster hanging in my room of John Brown um, by John Stork Curry, I believe it is. Um, forgetting the artist's name, but it's the one right, you know, kind of capturing the Civil War. And look at all those painters like Jackson Pollock that were put to work creating these kind of patriotic you know, paintings recalling our past, all the post office that I live uh, just south of Saratoga, New York, and their post office has these murals all the way around it, um, hearkening back. To it's not the famous novels. John Brown painting with him with a Bible in one hand and a gun. Oh, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, uh, Gathering Storm or Oh, Prelude. That was at to Kansas, Nebraska. It's called. Uh, that, and the, uh, the Kansas yeah. uh, um, uh, act, uh, the Bleeding Kansas thing. Yeah, that's why they have the tornado in the background. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's I love awesome. It. It's got all kinds of stuff. And that's a it's a New Deal program that WPA also like the slave narratives to actually hear the slaves speaking about yep, their I play that one too. Uh, living through it. Fantastic. I know Ken Burns brings that in as a voiceover. Um, even Dorothea Lang taking those pictures, you know, working for the Farm Resettlement Administration, whatever the name of that organization was, you know, and here he is being challenged in the court while these pictures are appearing in newspapers of the plight of the farmers. Um, so you see that it's just, you know, it's so much about just everything coming to a crashing stop during the later twenties, but it's more about this mobility and activity in the thirties. Did it get us out of depression? No, but it did something psychological to them. I think was important. And a lot of people. And that goes like those fireside chats and everything. And, and, yeah. Yeah, um, insane. Uh, well, I don't know about your governor. Our governor's on the news quite a bit. And I was laughing. He does a press conference every day. And I said, stay, my wife, um, I said, you know, it's interesting. FDR was in office for 12 years. He gave 30 fireside chats. So these were, you know, must listen. You, you went in there and you, you scheduled it. You wanted to hear it. And the way he delivered the message too, the way he greeted everyone as my friends. And when I was growing up and I'm a little older than you, I used to watch. Yeah, Mr. I, yeah, yeah, I, I caught it too. I was talking I thought he was, yeah, I thought he was talking directly to me. You know, and I, a lot of people, I think, felt that. And the letters reveal that when you look at how people are asking their president for some assistance and that connectivity. And he was able to kind of see that and to come from a position of wealth. Obviously, he's, he's, he's pretty well off with the Hyde, uh, Hyde Park Roosevelt's, but he lost. I mean, he lost the use of his legs. And that experimentation piece, I think, is emblematic of how he approached the whole depression. How do you kind of connect and relate to an individual that never had to work a day in his life, never has been put into a circumstance where he's been stressed out, wondering where he's going to get his next meal? I think there's a relatability factor there when you look at the fact that this guy lost, you know, at a pretty, you know, 39 years old, lost the use of his legs and had to kind of figure it out. And even when he was doing some of these experimentations down in uh, Georgia, none of those people are going to walk again. But the thought that that possibility existed. Maybe yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that part about uh, Roosevelt, I read uh, last year a great book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about uh, leadership. Yeah, it covered oh, um, yes. Lincoln, Teddy, Franklin, and uh, LBJ on just like how they kind of and totally different like ways that they approached it. Like for instance, LBJ came from incredible Texas poverty out on the hillsides, and um, yeah. And then, I mean, his family was in incredible poverty, but then like just through just sheer determination. Uh, well, I guess both of them had, had like the sheer determination common thread, but they, they, they kind of went up 
came, came up through the political ranks in different ways, you know, and then, um, you know, the Roosevelt's That's both had kind of the privileged background and everything, but like um, the Franklin Roosevelt one was fascinating, you know, when he had the polio and then he started, I think it was the first ever kind of like center for polio recovery. Yeah. That's um, cold, cold Springs. Cold Harbor, cold spring. Yeah. Cold Harbor. I think it was cold Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. March of Dimes, all, all that. Yeah. And that's like, uh, he had some of his money is, his, I got a great book for you if you're interested. So this author, the reason I reached out to this author on Sacco Vanzetti is I ordered a book uh, and Amazon said it wasn't going to come till May 18th. So I'm like, you know what? If I can't get the book, I'm going to get the author. So I reached out to her for that reason. Well, as I was waiting um, for this book to come, I, I picked up a book uh, two years ago. I just never read it. It was on the woman behind the New Deal, Frances Perkins. And I'm telling you, dude, you have to read this book. She is the Forrest Gump of this time. What was period. the title? She's everywhere. I mean, she's um, the woman behind the New Deal. The author escapes me right now. Um, but she's everywhere. She's um, this young, she's from Boston, Mass, or just outside of Boston. Um, she's well-educated, college-educated, Mount Holyoke. She has this um, social worker instinct in her, but she comes from privilege, and she really defies her parents by going to work in Chicago. And lo and behold, who does she rub elbows with? But Hull House and, and So many connections. And from there, she's going to... Oh, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And then she comes back to New York to go to school at Columbia and she witnesses the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and starts um, working with the Alfred Smith administration as governor of New York. And then from there she gets picked. She is unbelievable. And I'm embarrassed that I don't give her her due respect because I mention her in the context of the first female cabinet member. And she is so much more than that. More to the point, too, as a woman, she was a gamer because she recognized that men thought a certain way they all had wives and mothers and the way she dressed and the way she played to them mm. was leverage absolute absolute gamer it's a fantastic book and i'm, I'm going to use pieces kirsten downey the author author uh, for my kid yeah. is it kirsten highly rated uh, <laughs> pretty high ratings on uh, amazon and what year did uh, it come out uh, say? i gotta click it. oh 2009 2009. Honestly, I got a, as a Christmas gift a couple of years back, and it's one of those. That's the other thing about this closure. I have this thing called What Can I Learn Wednesday. I kind of shut things down a little after dinner time around seven o'clock, and I bang through books. I think I'm that. I just. I wish I could do that. Having a, a two and five year old um, who, who thankfully are quiet right now. Um. <laughs> yeah, we're at different stages, man. <laughs> Mine are 18, 16, and 13. So there's a level of independence there that I'm truly appreciating and it's kind of that's my downtime yeah. and getaway time but <laughs> yeah that one was good um what's the other one i finished here i got it oh this um this was actually this was recommended by one of my students who's at boston college right now it's called the first tycoon the life of cornelius vanderbilt that one, by tj styles i'm telling you there, there's another one uh, this guy is in the middle of it all taken from gibbons all the way through that's worth a look and Oh, the one I'm in right now is uh, Freedom from Fear by David Kennedy, which I've read in the past. But as you probably know, when you're, I, I have notes on things, but sometimes I'm getting a little older. Now I'll forget <laughs> and I jot some stuff down, but I, I'm reading different chapters on that. I, I haven't read the whole thing through. I'm just. Is that the same guy who authors the pageant? Them, so. <laughs> yeah. Which I've actually, my kids don't have the pageant. We have uh, America's History. And um, I did okay. review, I remember I got asked to uh, review, which, uh, or, or it wasn't review. It was, 
it, I don't know, basically they, they sent me one and a few hundred bucks and um, I went through like the latest oh, edition nice. of it and everything like that. And um, I remember it was, it was a bit tedious there. That book is just massive. Yeah. I'm trying to steer myself away um, from a textbook and I know we're supposed to have one. So I do hand one out, but a lot of what you're doing with documents, I'm trying to replicate as well. So that the textbook is, would be support, maybe context support. Uh, and I'm working at doing what historians do. Here's the document. I had a professor in college that said, you want to know what they were thinking, read what they wrote. So I'm going to go back and kind of dissect. And to that point, I do a lot. Um, the teaching American history.org. Um, does webinars. I don't know if you ever heard of them, um, but if you check them out, they do webinars and they've been doing really timely webinars. One was on the uh, flu epidemic of 1918. So what I do, I have a, a 600 acre preserve next to my house. Uh, and every morning, you know, I pop in one of the archived webinars or I actually go live. You get PD credit if you go live. And I do a tour of this preserve and just kind of take things in, which kind of directs me in certain places or about certain documents. So they do American minds. They do um, documents in detail. Uh, one I listened to on uh, Wednesday, the live one was on Calvin Coolidge's uh, 150th uh, anniversary commence or uh, speech about the Declaration of Independence. I'm like, oh, I don't spend much time on Cal, which I probably should, but it was fascinating. They're all archived on their YouTube channel. And it's, I think there's about 100, 110 teachers that kind of join in and just listen. You can ask questions if you want, but just kind of walking around the preserve and listening to this stuff has given me a ton of ideas and how I can bring these documents right into my course. Um, so that's been exciting in terms of, of, of kind of a benefit of this closure. Here's another resource that will get me far. Yeah, it's interesting. I've gone through a lot of different uh, stages, oh. like throughout my teaching career, partly because I've worked at so many different places. Um, first part, I mean, the first, you know, few years is just, you know, just struggling to get by. But then, um, like, when I was in Thailand, where I was at a project-based school. And what's interesting, and, and I like it, I like the project-based thing in, in doses. But when the whole year is that, it, I don't know, it, right. it, was, it was a little frustrating, too, at times. The one thing that was nice about it was uh, I had great people to work with in the in, in uh, ELA and, and math and science. Like, and so we would, yeah, oh, we create like these interdisciplinary projects that are really good. Uh, if I didn't have great people, like I would, it would, I would, it'd, it'd be a struggle at some other places and everything. And in general too, like it just doesn't have that kind of like structure that you normally have the course. And then one year I was at um, yeah. University Lake School, which is a private prep school in Wisconsin. Um, it's one of the most elite ones. And it's down in Milwaukee. And um, there was, they had a constructivist approach, which is, I guess, project-based learning, but the kids choose the projects and um, they construct their own learning. I don't know how closely I followed uh, the way that they wanted to go. It was interesting. And I think if you had that kind of clientele, which I'll be honest, was extremely wealthy, extremely privileged, uh, Intel and with with a ton of resources, yeah, it can work. Um, and then class sizes of like, I don't know, one of my classes was literally eight kids in the class. Um, but then when I got to Appleton East, you know, seven years ago, um, I kind of brought some of that project things and stuff like that to to the AP realm, and it didn't really work the first year. Um, and by like by about halfway through the year, I had kids actually asking me like, "Hey, can you lecture more?" 
I, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think that project based thing would work at this point in my career in the right environment. I could, I could do it early in the career. No way. But a lot of people will, um, cause I, I, I hate to say lecture cause it's such a, it has such a negative connotation, but what I'm really doing for mm-hmm. my kids is I'm telling the story. And that story is basically pulling all these resources together that I've explored and experimented with and delivering that in the hour I have with them. We have our blocks and, and the kids are kind of hungry for that uh, as opposed to, you know, we, if we did group work or if, if other teachers had experiment with that, I know how that goes in terms of a real deep dive into the content. There's one or two kids doing the work and three or four others kind of just yeah. riding the wave until the hours are out. So I like structuring my hour and taking them a certain place and allowing them to take what they absorb from my presentation and apply that in some skill sense later, some skill activity. So I, I, I'm unapologetic about that approach um, because I think it's effective. I, I put a lot of time, effort and energy in doing outside reading and preparing. I mean, I don't just these don't just fall off the apple cart. You know, they're packaged and prepped by you. This is not easy to do. And I think some of the kids appreciate that. I think they feed off of that because it's an they some it doesn't pass the smell test for some kids when they're getting packets just thrown at them because they know not not all effort went into it. But if they recognize that you're trying right. and you, you want to really do a deep dive and tell this story, I think they're going to reciprocate with their level of work and their attitude. It doesn't work for everyone, but one thing, win some converts that way. Um, now, outside of A push, and, and, and one of my frustrations with, with A push, I mean, I love teaching it, but like just that time frame to get everything in by you know uh, by the test and everything, and yeah. uh, and you're you know you're kind of teaching to like you know to the test. While I don't think it's a bad test, it is you know you are kind of teaching that test, but. Outside of AP, though, I teach civics, and um, I've really loved the C3 framework, uh, the, the national kind of standards of, of inquiry units. And I've basically right. – uh, so what, what grade level is that for you? So I've, I've basically okay. changed my civics completely around to inquiry, where it doesn't throw out lecture. I mean, a lot of days it'll be like a five- to ten-minute kind of starter thing to me to give them some background knowledge, and then – you know, like one of the things I do, which would be great for AP too, is like, you know, every kind of unit has like a big question. So one of the big ones I ask is, um, has the United States achieved the ideals of the Declaration of Independence? So like, have we achieved life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and equality? And I take a document from every decade, I, I'm sorry, every century. So I have, we analyze the Declaration of Independence. We analyze uh, Seneca Falls in 1848. Um, we analyze uh, Martin Luther King's oh, I Have cool. a Dream speech, and then we analyze Obama's 2004 Democratic National Convention speech. That was like his coming out speech. Um, nice. And then we have a few other things, right. too. We look at like some things about, you know, different factors of inequality and things like that, too. And then they have a big kind of Google Groups discussion about it where they have to have like a, a proper initial post where they make an argument, and they use some evidence and stuff like that. But then they reply to each other on there. And... Oh, I like you know, that. like it, it, it's, I don't know. I don't see myself going back. Like another unit I just did, we have, um, we have a lot of truancy problems at my school and um, we used to have something called truancy court where a judge would come in to our school and once a month and would basically hold court right there and would um, uh, basically kids were, were cited before they came to, uh, to it because it's a state law. You can't miss more than 10 days of school. And um, he would then uh, come in and basically most kids didn't have to actually pay the citation, which was a few hundred bucks, but um, uh, they would have to go in and talk to the judge and, and they would try and the judge would try to figure out, all right, why are you missing school? Is it, uh, is it social anxiety? Do you need a counselor? 
is it uh you know are are um you just don't want to go like what what may what what might it be and that was a real deterrent for for truancy it it helped keep the number. yeah like the kids who went to truancy oh, court wow. very shortly afterwards like started showing up to school more often which was like the goal but that was gotten rid of interesting. um yeah. for a couple of reasons local school board member said it was like a prison to pipeline type program but i thought it was actually the opposite of that our school to prison pipeline sure. um right <laughs> so uh they got rid of that and now yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of all over. But anyways, so in civics, I have a big question is for like our kind of local government unit. All right, should truancy, well, local government, you know, being like the school is a part of that, you know, should truancy court have been something that should have got, been gotten rid of? So we have, we have to look at the data. We have to look at the state laws, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll do a little bit, but then I bring in like um, the assistant principal who takes care of, of the, of the discipline issues and stuff like that. And she'll talk about it from her perspective. I'll bring the school oh, nice. police liaison officer in. He'll talk about it from his perspective. And all those can be sources for then their eventual response. But which you can't really do that stuff with a push, but like it's. It, uh, that, yeah. No, I'm trying to find that, that middle ground with that because there's times and I've gotten wise enough to recognize the ebb and flow of the calendar. So I, I try to work in some project stuff or, you know, some computer stuff that's self-directed based on coming back either from a long weekend or a long break. So I'm wise enough to recognize that I don't have them that first day back and to build momentum, I'll do something that's self-directed, but it's definitely. Yeah, do you have anything other than a push more. or just a push? But I, I do. I have, um, well, I have a college in the high school through a local community college where they can earn college credits called um, CHS American History. It's in two semesters. Uh, and I also teach an introduction to sociology course. And um, a lot of my kids that I had in my advanced class take that class. It's like a decompression hour. Um, and I built the course like I would like to take a course. It's conversational. Um, it's a lot of pop culture stuff. Um, right now we're doing a unit on the high school through the decades. Um, so they're watching Freaks and Geeks, an episode on Freaks and Geeks to capture kind of what's happening. Their next um, time frame is going to be the 90s where I'm doing my so-called life. So it's just really, it's kind of fun stuff um, that I get a chance to to experiment and play with. And um, it's it's difficult to fail. Um, and it's a lot of, I have a lot of fun, but it's a decompression hour for me as well. Um, because, you know, during the day, I'm really dialed in trying to you know get the college kids prepared for for either the skill or whatever. So it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of grading and this becomes a decompression. Um, do you want to tackle like the sure. last kind of big question when it comes to yeah. the new deal? Shoot. <laughs> I just got an email so, from the author. Does the, does <laughs> the new deal yeah, actually solve the great depression? <laughs> so if we look at, um, the body of evidence would suggest no, it's right. going to be our war mobilization that does. Right? So that, that change right there, it's more about the relationship the federal government has with the average American citizen than it is about really solving that, the economic issues associated with it. So that mobilization piece um, is, is really what, what pulls us out. Well, so we look at a chart kids? that shows government spending and you know, there is a spike in government spending compared to the 1920s when you get to the mid-1930s. And then another little spike, too, when you get to the second New Deal, although less of a spike. But then when you see the spike of World War II, right. the New Deal looks like nothing. 
it, it's just the, the when you zoom out, the New Deal just looks like this tiny little bump. Um, and so I usually come back to is like, you know, it does help to, you know, uh, instill that faith again in the institutions, in, in, in the overall, you know, system and all that kind of stuff, especially with shoring up the banks with the FDIC, like having people have banks again that they will trust to put in their savings because that's how that's how the system runs right you got to have yeah. uh the, the bank savings accounts so they, they can make loans yeah, and faith. so then you make loans to people who can start businesses and then that money goes back to the banks to then have more you know but then the bank fails you lose all that money so like it's like okay well the government did really help in you know fdic and those things like, like that really helped a lot building confidence back in into the institutions but overall, like trying to fix the, the deep problem uh, of that uh, recession, it, yeah, it's World War II. And, you know, the argument is then like, all right, well, did they need to spend more money? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Can you, can you send me that? Um, sure, the government spending. That, that reference you're using? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, then we're going to bring in eventually, of course, we'll get Ike in there with this military industrial complex, you know, the profiteers. What are we doing now? Are we constantly on this footing where we're researching and developing new weapons, etc.? I don't even know what the um, unemployment numbers are uh, by the time we get to World War there's I. A, yeah, there's a, I like a, there's a, a double. Dip, so basically it goes to 25% in 1932. And then it does drop uh, for the first new deal. It does get it down to like the 12 to 15% range. But then in 36, 37, there's like another kind of like, I think they even have like a name for it. Like there's like another like recession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Roosevelt recession. Uh, the Roosevelt recession. It's like 1936 yeah. to 38. It kind of it dips back down. It gets back down to 25%. By the time you get to World War II though, the time you get to like 40, 41, it, you know, the economy is starting to come around, but partly part of that is, is because the U S is again, starting to supply, you know, allies with materials and everything. <laughs> yeah. So you, what's your, un, is your unemployment in, um, 40, I'm, I'm not sure. I have to look up the number. At that point? Maybe not to look that up. Cause we have to consider we have soldiers that are now, you know, abroad as well. So those occupations um, are opened up for people to fill. And then we have women doing things they haven't done before. Which, so, yeah. Then you know, when you get to that, to I mean, that, that there. Pearl Harbor date is just really such a turning point for so many things because, you know, the, the day before Pearl Harbor, you had the America first committee with 800,000 members, um, you know, with Lindbergh, yeah, Lindbergh <laughs> leading the charge, and I oh play a portion God. of his uh, Des Moines speech uh, for for students. Yeah, it it, it is. Oh, um, that's unreal. You know, there's another there's a there's a book on uh, called Those Angry Days by Lynn Olson, um, which is I put that on your list as well because that was one of those books I read afterwards. I'm like, oh my God, I never considered this this Lindy connection. Um, and in mm -hmm. how vociferous he was as an American firster and what happened after that. I mean, she doesn't, she kind of beats up um, FDR a little bit and says he was inactive uh, in terms of being, you know, vocal about uh, intervention. Um, so she's a little off there. I think, I think he was sharp in the way he tried to lead us. We're an isolationist country with an isolationist tradition. So trying to get us to this point, that, that's not easy to do, but it's a really good book in that regard. And I do have an um, interesting uh, connection. Um, 
I'm a, I watch uh, football in the fall and my favorite show is college game day. So for my kids, uh, I started this about two years ago. It's goofy as hell, but fun. So I wear um, game day polos with schools and they have to guess why I'm wearing the polo or I have a coffee cup that has the insignia on it. So I, I spent uh, probably too much money on it, but it's incredibly fun. The only school that I have multiple oh, nice. pieces of gear for is the University of Wisconsin. I have a, a three-quarter zip, a polo, I have socks, I believe I even have a mug. And the reason being is I get to use UW, I think, three or four different times. So the first time I use it with their mascot, mm -hmm. with the badger, for the German miners that would badge into the side of the, the hill. The second time I use it for Frederick Jackson Turner as a historian being trained at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the third time I use it when Lucky Lindy, who goes there, I believe, as an undergrad but doesn't finish, um, gives a speech at UW. And the last time I use um, Wisconsin is the uh, Dow Chemical recruitment protests that are happening on campus in the 60s, which I knew nothing about until mm. I started researching it for this goofy game day thing I was doing. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I have some kids that have no clue what I'm doing. Other kids will, <laughs> will come in as soon as they see what I'm wearing, like, what's the connection? Why, why are you wearing a Butler University shirt today? So it's a lot of fun, man. Plus, it mixes up the wardrobe a little bit. You know, the standard uh, social studies teacher wardrobe yeah. hasn't changed since 47. So I like mixing it up a little bit. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've had some fun with it. And I've learned a lot about the schools. Um, it's uh, It's been fun. <laughs> and I have college kids, you know, kids that are looking at colleges. And, and sometimes I do a little bit about the college itself um, in case they're considering it. Like I have one girl that's going to James Madison University. Um, and that's one that came in. I wore James Madison, actually, uh, when I was talking about Jemmy at the convention. Um, but here's a, here's a cool one for you real quick. I'm going to see if I can find it. University of South Carolina. Uh, my nephew goes there and University of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I use that connection for the mascot, the Gamecocks, um, sectional issues. It's the Gamecock oh, yeah. nickname came from Charles Sumter, which I'm sure you know. Here's, here's their motto. So this was the largest slaveholding state in the union. Learning humanizes character and does not Learning permit it to be cruel. Character. That's their motto. Let me, like, hold on, let me adjust that, that one real quick. What was it again? Learning <laughs> Learning humanizes character and does not permit it to be cruel. That is the University of South Carolina's motto. Largest slaveholding yeah. state in the U.S. <laughs> so fun stuff like that. I just had a ball doing. So uh, Hoover came in as well. I wore Stanford gear um, since he went to Stanford. Kind of. Yeah, he was a Stanford guy, Iowa born, and then ends up in Stanford becoming a mining millionaire. We actually have interesting connections because the only two engineering presidents are the ones that had very unsuccessful terms. No, Stanford. Okay, so most uh, presidents Harvard. came from like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Is Stanford kind of the old, other one where a good amount came from? Yeah. Um, that I don't know. Um, in terms of where presidents came from, we have some local ones here mm -hmm. that I play around with, like Union College with Chester Arthur, um, a notable secretary of state under Lincoln, William Seward. He went to Union College. But in terms of it's mostly the Ivy elites. When you look at that America First group and you look at the people that are being so vocal, um, there's a good chunk. I, I forget what they called the group, but Gerald Ford. Um, yeah, Ford was in there. I remember I was doing some research on America First recently well. for um, – a CCOT for foreign policy. And, um, and I, I dived a little deeper into America first than, than I've done before. And I was like, well, Ford was in America first. 
or there's he had the names off the top man there's a ton of them and jfk's at harvard at the time too but when you think about this these guys don't want to go to war because they're next up you know so they're going to be pretty vocal about it um and interesting in the those angry days book i didn't realize how contentious that two-year window before the war was in terms of our engagement in global affairs uh, it's really amazing uh and the way she presents it which i think her thesis has proved it, it was mm -hmm. the one of the most contentious times in our history you know even you take vietnam civil war all that stuff out of the picture it's really it was a really interesting book um in terms of that part of history that i didn't know but then about, yeah but then I you get to pearl harbor and that history. you know unemployment is gone uh america first is gone the leaders of them the, the leaders yeah. of them basically they, they, they issued like a <laughs> final statement i think it was on like the december 10th or something like that and they're like you know we did what we did because we're trying to keep america safe but now that you know uh we've been attacked uh yeah yeah mm -hmm. hey, fair enough i'll give them that fair enough right yeah, there's a um, I'll have to send this to you, too. I um, one of my students who I had for two and a half years, and that's not a misprint. Uh, he failed. <laughs> I used to teach regular level U.S. history. He failed uh, twice. I loved him as a kid. He's an auto mechanic now. That's where his aptitude lies. Um, but after summer school, he finally passed. He gives me a gift. He goes, this is my grandfather's diary. He wrote this out. He had it published. I'm like, Jason, man, why'd you give this to me two years ago? Long story short, he has this entry from December 7th, 1941, and where I teach in Boston Spa. It's an, a lovely look at small town America when this happened. And he comes in and says to his mom, hey, Pearl Harbor's been shot. And mom says, who's she? thought it was some type of actor or actress. <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But I also have on, uh, I'll send this to you as well, the different um, perspectives about Pearl Harbor. So when Pearl Harbor's bombed, um, Hitler's like, oh, game time. You know, we have Japan. They've never been vanquished. They're on our team. This is, uh, this is it. Um, and then we have Churchill who, who goes to bed and sleeps quite soundly mm -hmm. because he now knows that America is going to join the fight. Uh, and then the Japanese... Uh, I forget his title, um, but he basically says to the emperor, listen, if, if we attack the United States, give me six months because I've seen their productive mm -hmm. capabilities and, and we're going to wake a sleeping bear here. So I can run wild for about yeah, six he was months. But after that, it's not going to go well, which he was right. So it's so interesting to see this one event that, you know, just the different reactions that have come to it. I'll give you one more uh, before we go. I have to cut this uh, off because Susan's going to be. Uh, my, my next interview is coming up. This is fun. I, this is a great one for you. And there's a book. Uh, I don't think I have it on my shelf here. It's called Overthrow by Stephen Kinzer. And it's basically uh, the story starting with Hawaii of U.S. sponsored overthrow of democratically elected governments. But there's this great line in the book where Queen Lil is talking about her brother who had turned over Pearl Harbor to the Americans in 1887. And she says, um, and she writes this out in her diary. She goes, this is a day that will live in infamy in Hawaiian history. The fact that we turned Pearl Harbor over to the Americans. Now, I don't know if it's connected to that famous speech, you know, yesterday, December 7th, the day that live in infamy, because he crossed out the word world history and put infamy. Uh, I think that was so more just Roosevelt's um, his, his <laughs> aptitude at, uh, at speech and, 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 yeah, he was good. He was a good wordsmith and good editor. I think uh, yeah. simplifying things and just he had powerful word choices. Yeah. But how cool it is an interesting been, connection. You know? and, 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 well and it's a whole another <laughs> but, deep dive, the craziness of the whole Hawaiian uh, thing in the late 1800s. 
Oh my gosh, that is that whole story. Jeez, that's that's for another day. But yeah, you're, and what he does, I think it's 16 case studies, uh, and the ones that you probably have talked about in class. Obviously, you know Hawaii is in that mix, but I think the one that kids have the most trouble with would be the overthrow of Mossadegh. Um, in, in the context of that mess. And when you look at the nationalization of the oil fields and the threat of communism and access to that resource, it's just an absolute mess. And, and, and that's a fun one in that book as well. Yeah, it's great. Well, my friend, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, one of the things I do miss in this current circumstances, I used to have a, a couple colleagues that would get to school early and we spend our day just rapping about what we read, what we listened to, and it really kind of shaped the day. Uh, and that's kind of lost. So I've been reaching out to, to anyone who will answer uh, in terms of these conversations and maybe moving forward, we could do something with a little more regularity, which uh, this, this podcast thing is kind of cool. I'd love, they probably get bored with me. And if, if the podcast in its early start was horrible, it's me reading the notes, just trying to figure things out. So I have a digital record of my missteps and it's just miserable to listen to. So I'm actually trying to take it in different directions, I think, for two reasons. One, to get the kids engaged, but also for me too. You know, maybe a year later, I go back and listen to a podcast I did on the bonus army. It kind of refreshes my memory on a runner on my way to school. So just kind of having fun with this. But it's a relatively easy thing to do. I'm hoping that the recording worked. I'm hoping I can uh, import it without no, a problem. Easy. You didn't have any obstacles getting on, did you, once you click the link? And the audio is pretty good. So, you know, I love that. If, if the opportunity presents itself, to do it again to kind of reach out and say, hey, what are you doing for this topic or how are you reviewing with your kids or things like that? It'd be a great opportunity. Sounds good. Us. Yeah. Let me know if you uh, ever want to uh, uh, yeah, record again. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I much appreciate it and we will definitely be in touch. Uh, Thank you. You too. Have a good, good one. Good luck with your kids right. in the exam. We don't speak before that. Well, that concludes my interview with Brian Kurth from Appleton East High School in Wisconsin. Uh, great opportunity to talk shop with a fellow AP United States history teacher. Um, join me next time for another little adventure in the bunker.